In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash happening and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash happening. Thanks for your help. For me, this is like just really believing in the potential of this moment. And what I do see is a very genuine desire on the part of people who have historically had a lot of privilege to do things differently. Like, let's do it differently. Let's not just read differently or watch differently or listen differently. Like, let's physically and with our resources and our very own children do things differently. Hello and welcome to Why Is This Happening with me, your host, Chris Hayes. Back to school season. I love back to school season. Always have. I was one of those kids who liked to go back to school. I think there's like two kinds of kids. There's kids that like to go back to school and kids who don't like to go back to school. If you listen to the podcast, you probably had me pegged as the former, to be totally honest. I don't think that's a big reveal. Partly because my summers tended to be, I was not doing like big, you know, bike trips through the mountains or, or fun sleepaway camps. It was a lot of like, 100 degree weather on basketball courts by myself or my one friend who was around or, uh, you know, going to day camps in the Bronx. That said, back to school season is exciting. I've got three kids, of course. The oldest is uh, in middle school. The middle kid is in elementary school. The youngest is in, in preschool. School ends up being the repository of so much of our political battles. I mean, you're seeing this play out right now as the right has focused on schools as you know, a place to attack, to run people for school boards, to police curricula, to name and shame, and in some cases, harass teachers to try to get them fired for the things they teach. And at one level, there's kind of like a moral panic aspect to that, A. B, there's a long tradition of this. It's not new at all. You go back through decades of American history from really from even the time, you know, around World War II when like you know, really you have full universal schooling everywhere, which it took a while, actually. It starts in Massachusetts in the late 19th century. But as long as there's been universal schooling, there's been fights over what those schools look like. And those fights go along all kinds of lines around, you know, the role of religion in those schools, about what curricula gets taught. And then, of course, the biggest fight, the central fight in public education, arguably, I would say, has been a fight over race. And, you know, probably the single most famous case in the Supreme Court's history, Brown v. Board, which strikes down segregated schooling in Arkansas, then for the whole country, a set of cases after that that we've covered on the podcast quite a bit, starts a long, brutal process of desegregation of American schools. And then a whole bunch of factors through backlash politics, through white flight, through geographic movement, through a bunch of Supreme Court cases, all the way up to including parents involved, which is one of the most recent, basically starts to undo the legal policy structure that was producing desegregation. And in the last 20 years, by most metrics, we have seen schools start to resegregate. The resegregation of schools is just like, it's a fact of life in any major metro area. <laughs> like, doesn't matter where you are. If you are in a, particularly if you are within the city limits of a big, large city, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Houston, Boston, on and on and on, 
there will be segregated schools. You will also find that in large metropolises in America, the vast majority of public school students in the city limits, in almost all cases, are non-white. Huge levels of students of color, particularly black students, who are also uh, qualify for free or reduced lunch, which means they're from relatively low-income households. And this is just like a fact of the landscape, right? This is just like the way it is. It's like the mountains, right? It doesn't have to be this way. A whole bunch of policy choices have been made to produce this. But the policy choices that have been made to produce this are much larger than any individual parent, you know? So there's a huge structural thing that's happened at a bunch of different levels to produce this. And then there's the question of what you do with your kid. (laughs) And this is a really fraught question. You know, I don't want to be too... I talk about my life a lot on the podcast. I want to preserve some privacy for our family. But, you know, we, we as I've said many times on the show, we send our kids to public school. That's really important to us to send our kids to public school as just a, you know, expression of our values and the value of public school, uh, the fact that we were educated in public school when we were elementary school students. But it's also not always that clear and easy. And, you know, and the choices that parents make, I don't really judge or begrudge. And that's across lines of race and class. But... This question of where the rubber meets the road for your child's schooling ends up, I think, being a really profound one, and it's one on an axis on which a lot of politics turns. Because if you to loop back to what we've seen about sort of this right-wing backlash movement, when we've seen these sort of big, really, really brutal and nasty fights at schools, and they could be on anything. Often they're around things like busing or a desegregation plan or like getting rid of the gifted track that like all the white kids are in so that the school's actually integrated Parents lose their minds. (laughs) That's like where mama bear politics is like. And different forces have weaponized that in all kinds of complicated and often reactionary ways. But it's also just a human thing. We want our kids to go to a good school where they feel safe and nourished and we feel like they're learning. And there's this really fascinating book. It came out last year. It's out, I think, now in paperback. That is a book-length examination, a memoir, but a struggle with this. It's called Learning in Public. Lessons for a Racially Divided America from My Daughter's School. It's by Courtney Martin. She's a writer, author. She's written four books. Uh, she's got a newsletter on Substack called The Examined Family. And she writes about her daughter and her daughter's experience in her local Oakland public school and tells the story of that school, the background that produced the schooling there, and her own, she and her daughter's journey through public education in an America that is really segregated and really divided. There's a lot to learn from it. And so uh, it's a great pleasure to have Courtney on the program. Welcome, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I guess first, will you tell me about your own schooling? You grew up in Colorado Springs, is that right? Yes, grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Um, went to a largely white elementary school, although at the time, you know, I didn't even have that lens. I talk a lot in the book about sort of my own racial development as a white person and that this journey around making my kids' school choice forced me to look back and think more deeply about that. And I was really raised by two, you know, ex-hippies who deeply believed in sort of colorblind ideology. So I thought, you know, racism is bad and essentially it's over as long as I interpersonally treat people well. That was kind of my founding racial education or lack thereof, as it were. Yeah, and you talk about the book, This Forcing You Examine. I mean, you it sounds like you have a fairly, like, typical middle-class white upbringing that is in the universe that is 
kind of fully detached from exactly all the structures I talked about when you get into like big urban school districts. Yes. And I do think it was important. I wasn't raised around like a striving culture. I'd never heard of school choice. My parents never considered other schools. And like a lot of the context we're talking about today, where there's a lot of maneuvering and strategizing. I went to public school my whole life. I went to the public schools near my house. And, you know, because my parents weren't thinking structurally about race and weren't helping me understand things structurally, I didn't think much of that in terms of, you know, redlining and who lives in Colorado Springs and what parts of the city and why that leads to segregated schools. My middle school and high school are actually fairly integrated, interestingly. And as you, you know, mentioned in the intro, it's like the peak of integration was 1988. So I was eight years old. So, you know, theoretically, especially in my middle and high school, I experienced the peak of that and was deeply enriched by it. Yeah, I also, you know, I was right. So I was nine in 1988 and my, I had a particularly strange thing because I went to a this sort of gifted program in a Bronx school that was a borough-wide Bronx program in the 1980s, but it was very, you know, really integrated, really diverse. And, you know, I've watched over time, like the high school that I went to, which was considerably less racially integrated, grow less and less and less over time. So even just in the the micro view, I've watched how these factors have eroded at producing those spaces. When you moved from, you were in Brooklyn, you moved to Oakland, and you make that change intentionally. What, what were you seeking out in Oakland? Well, actually we moved because my husband got a job and he had lived in San Francisco when we met. I'd lived in New York and he had always been interested in in pulling me back west And I was ready for a change. I was pregnant when we moved and I was kind of preoccupied with all of the questions around just getting the baby out safely. So I was like trying to figure out, you know, who is my midwife going to be and what hospital would I give birth at and that kind of thing. But we never once thought to ourselves, where are we landing in terms of schools, which I know a lot of more kind of organized folks might have thought through, but we didn't. We also had this unique thing happen, which we got an opportunity to buy a home in a co-housing community, which was something I'd always been interested in. So that was also sort of distracting and preoccupying. Yeah. Tell me about that, the details of the co-housing. Yeah. So it's nine units. Um, All of them kind of face a central courtyard and everyone has everything that a typical home would have. Although we share um, laundry services, which to people in, you know, laundry room, which to people in New York is nothing, but to to other folks, that seems like a big share. Um, And then we also share an industrial size eating area and kitchen, tool shed, bike shed, garden, like just a lot of collective amenities. And we eat together once a week and then um, once a month do work on this piece of land together. So we, you know, weed the garden together. We figure out if someone needs, you know, their roof fixed or their dishwasher fixed. And we do that together. That sounds cool. Yeah, it is. It's an, it's been an incredible experience. And actually it really deeply informed how I thought about schools as communities and my ability to think, you know, just more deeply and in a more, ask some of the deeper questions around the school choice moment. So you're, you're in Oakland, um, the neighborhood in Oakland, describe a little bit, maybe set the scene a little bit of Oakland because Oakland's gone through this remarkable set of transformations, you know, over the last, well, kind of 60 years, right? So in sort of two different ways, right? Like the a massive wave of white flight followed by a massive wave of gentrification, basically. Set the scene a little bit because you tell some of this in the book of, of where Oakland is at when you end up moving there. Yeah, it's not easy to condense, but I did try to give, you know, a sense of the historical context. And, you know, Oakland, like most of the cities we can think about, had real federal intervention that created deep housing segregation. And now that it's like this trendy place to live, it is a historically Black city. It's got a, you know, 
predominant black and brown folks in Oakland, but you do have this growing number of white folks moving in, many of whom are actually avoiding public schools and or strategizing to get themselves into a couple of them. My neighborhood um, is called Temescal, and it was a historically black neighborhood before that, an Italian neighborhood. And this co-housing community I'm in has been there for 25 years. So certainly my neighbor, my immediate neighbors are not part of this new wave of gentrification, but essentially I see myself as kind of in relationship with that wave and trying to think through as a you know white family that just moved here. This is our neighborhood public school, Emerson Elementary. And all of a sudden I, I realized that my peers, you know, people of color, but largely white folks who work kind of, you know, in knowledge professions, et cetera, who all consider themselves deeply progressive and, you know, are involved in all kinds of movement work to make this country more progressive are mostly avoiding the school at all costs. And so that was sort of this like rubber meets the road moment of going, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait, we're all going to avoid this, you know, public school in our neighborhood. Why is that? What's the criteria by which we're deciding to do that? And what what is the answer? Well, I mean, there's there's a few. One is greatschools.org, which at the time said that the school is a one out of ten, which you know for many people would just be a non-starter. And I and I also in the book part of why it's memoir is I really wanted to get underneath some of the kind of psychosocial yep. pieces at play in this regard. And I have a vignette about my husband, who is certainly someone who would see a one out of ten and immediately run the other direction. So he and I had to do some like working together to think through what does that one out of 10 actually mean and how can we sort of interrogate it? But certainly the one out of 10 doesn't look good for most white parents. But also there's a lot of research on just even a look at the schoolyard, even if folks don't know about those numbers, where the vast majority of kids on that playground are black or brown. For many white parents, subconsciously, it becomes a non-starter that there's like a, a, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones obviously has written about this and done incredible, you know, radio journalism around this, that there really is a, a spot for white people for which they would like a certain amount of diversity, particularly progressive white people, so they feel like they are part of, you know, they're in alignment with their own progressive identity, but too many young people of color, and it tips over into something that they're going to try to avoid, even if subconsciously. Yeah, and I wonder, just to, to press on that a little bit, right? Like, so, so at one level, you have to, like, you know, you have to keep in mind, right, that we're not dealing with, like, symmetrical situations, right? Like, when you talk about, like, an all-white school and an all-black school because the nature of racial hierarchy in America is not symmetrical. In fact, that's precisely the finding of Brown v. Board, right? Like, literally the finding is that, like, separately equal cannot be equal, right? But from the first-person psychological standpoint, one of the things that Nicole writes about and I've read others talk about is, like, she talks about, you know, she went to this, this kind of gifted program, right, in Waterloo, that there was a lot of alienation. She was bussed across from where she was, and she was in a majority white space. That was hard and alienating and required a whole lot of social work on her part. And so, like, there's the, like, pernicious aspect of looking at an all-black and brown playground and being like, no, right? (laughs) Which is, you cannot strip away the sort of racism and racial hierarchy that comes from that. And then there's, like, a less pernicious version of, like, I don't want my kid to stick out. (laughs) Like, I don't want my kid to feel alienated and distant and alone and to have everyone look at them. And I think that's less pernicious. It's probably part of the psychological mix-up. But I'm curious to hear you talk about that, working through that, right? Because that's, that's, I think, like a real thing. It can be an excuse for really pernicious stuff, but it can also be an actual concern that parents have. Yeah, well, I think the honest concern, if we really dig down, is I will feel alienated as a white Mm -hmm. parent. Because- Mm -hmm. 
if you've ever watched a group of, you know, four-year-olds, which what, was what my daughter was when we were making this decision, because she went into transition kindergarten the year before kindergarten, you know, they figure it out on a playground. They don't particularly, you know, track that in the way that adults do. And so for me, and this is, you know, again, why the book is so personal, despite the risks of being that vulnerable, I really think this is about adult culture and about our adult experience of being like, what is it going to be like if I'm the one white mom in this kindergarten classroom? Am I going to be able to like handle myself in a way that I feel comfortable? Am I going to be able to socialize? Like, am I going to stick out like a sore thumb? Are my norms going to seem weird and bougie? Like all of these things that, you know, we could sort of put off to the side as like, these are ancillary concerns, but I think they actually are central to why white parents don't make more courageous decisions about schools quite often. How did you end up getting there in this discussion? Well, I had a lot of conversations with people I really respected, some of whom warned me against going to Emerson, honestly, some of whom said, like, don't turn your kid into an experiment. You know, we all want what's best for our kids, all these conversations. And I think what I really came down to was thinking both about the research, because, you know, I went, I'm a journalist by training, so I looked at Rucker C. Johnson's work. Um, He has this book called Children of the Dream, where he tracks that integration, you know, he says the medicine that is integration really does work. Like, it's clear that it's, you know, good for kids of color and white kids do fine and even have like this whole set of social skills they wouldn't have otherwise. So it's like, okay, cognitively, like that put it to bed for me that the research is there. This is fine. I think more on the emotional and kind of psychological, sociological level that living in co-housing really did help me feel my way into this because I thought about all the things that this community of people did 20 years ago to found the community. You know, they got solar panels and they thought through like, how can we work together and be interdependent? And like, what do all these things look like? And 20 years later, they've never met me. 20 years later, I'm like eating the fruit off, literally eating the fruit off of the trees that they planted. Mm. And so I think for me, there was this piece of like, what is both the world I want to live in and how do I plant that reality 20 years from now, harvest that, that could be harvested by people I don't even know, but also how, to, how could that be harvested by my kids? Like, I want this for my kids. I want them to feel like, you know, they've lived the questions with me in the country in a really real way. And, and I, you know, again, with that cognitive understanding that they will do fine and they will learn how to read and they will, you know, get all of the academic stuff they need why would I deprive them of such a like beautiful social experience? And I also just feel like like all of parenting is an experiment, you know, and to act as if our school choice is the only experiment that has real profound effects seems disingenuous to me. Like all of, you know, what we feed our kids is an experiment. Who we socialize with is an experiment. Where we vacation, to your point of summers, is an experiment. Like, why wouldn't we run a really interesting experiment? Yeah, I mean, there's also, to me, I want to talk about the, greatschools.org and that part and then this sort of anxiety that I think hangs over this before we get a little bit into your the actual experience. So, you know, greatschools.org for folks that don't know, like I think there's two different sites that will have these sort of scoring of schools. You can just basically put in any school in the country and it's got some rating, right? And I think they've actually gotten a little better over time in how they are doing that rating. You know, one of the real problems, right? And, and there are I forget which of the sites, so I'm, I'm not re- recalling right now. But, like, there's a question of, like, what are the inputs to the school and then what is the school doing? So one of the things that you'll see happen, and this is true in New York City, right, a school that was a quote-unquote bad school, <laughs> both, like, in reputation and its scores, right, on the websites, as it gets more affluent parents, <laughs> begins to become a good school. 
Now, has the pedagogy improved? No. Has it gotten some amazing, dynamic, new, innovative principle? In some cases, no. (laughs) What happened? Kids with higher degrees of social capital, (laughs) like home resources and affluence, who, for a bunch of different reasons, test better, started moving into the school. That has nothing to do with how good the school is at taking a kid from where they are to where they need to be. It has nothing to do. It's just, that's just on the input side. And what ends up happening, I think, a lot in the good school, bad school discussion is, in terms of what we're measuring, and and I've seen this up close, actually, in schools that are supposed to be good schools and are not actually good schools. They just have a lot of a student body that's sort of equipped anyway, right? And schools that are, quote unquote, bad schools that are incredible schools that are taking kids who are way below grade level and getting them close to it, that the way we both conceptualize and measure doesn't do a great job often between distinguishing those things. And so what you end up doing is just a rough proxy for race and class, essentially. Exactly. Right. And that's one reason on a very practical level why looking at growth scores means so much more than looking at, you know, baseline, how are kids doing? Because kids are doing, you know, as you said, you can map it on to socioeconomics and race. The interesting thing, and this is what I try to grapple with in the book, is the rubber meets the road where we have to ask as a parent community, and here's where it's, I'm lucky enough to be part of a like deeply diverse parent community, both racially, but culturally, because we have a quarter newcomers. So we have folks from, you know, all over the world showing up with their own educational expectations and ideas about what matters. We have to sit together as a parent group and as a staff and say, what, how do we want to measure how our kids are doing? What does matter to us? And so that's this interesting moment of saying like, well, if test scores do matter for getting kids through all of the gates of opportunity, then for some parents, and including some Black parents at our Black majority school, they really want those test scores up. They really yeah, want totally. focus yeah. on those test scores. For other parents, including other Black parents, because you know, there is no monolith, they'll say, I don't care about the test scores. I want my kid to feel like they belong and that they're learning. And I think those tests are racist and I don't want to focus on those. So as a parent community, we're then forced to work together on figuring out how much emphasis do we put on these scores? What do we care about? And for me, that gets back to this like most foundational point, which is like, that's democracy. Like I'm Mm -hmm. lucky enough to get to sit in those rooms, whether, you know, Zoom rooms or real rooms and try to wrestle with these questions as opposed to being with sort of a monolithic group of people who, you know, the kids' test scores are fine anyway. So we're like, you know, not having these deeper conversations about how do we think about all of our kids and what matters to all of us, even though we're coming from so many different points of experience. Yeah, although the, the, the point about that's democracy, which is a great point, is also like, it makes me think of that great Oscar Wilde quote, which I've used before in the podcast, that, the, you know, the problem with socialism is it takes up too many evenings. Like, it's just like, it's a lot of time. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, you're talking to someone of- who lives in an intentional community and is part of like a school yes. site council. Well, I mean, so it's you, like death think, by meetings. I think we're a little different personality type in that respect. It's like this, you're, you're sketching what to me is like a real kind of hell, actually. And I say this as someone who's like, <laughs> substantive philosophical commitments is to like deliberative democracy and all this stuff, but who's like personal feeling about like being in a meeting that lasts more than three minutes is like, what, what are we doing? Why, why is this going so long? So, but yeah, like that, I think gets to this question about, you know, this book ends up being exploration of, of just like, right. Public schools are the sites of community and they're the sites of democratic community. Right. And that's part of why what's so pernicious about the current racial makeup, right, of the world that we've constructed policy-wise. Tell me a little bit about 
just the first person experience of the school, what you were surprised, not surprised by, what your daughter's experience of it was like, what it was like as a, a parent in the school when you first started. Well, the daughter um, answer is easy. I now actually have two kids there right. and we've been at the school for five years and they're, they, you know, they love it. They love it. It's normal to them. It's, you know, there's nothing really to say about their experience of it other than they you know, have this rich social life and get exposed to all these cool kids from all these different kinds of families. And so, you know, from their perspective, this is just what school is and they're thriving. I'm grateful for their incredible teachers and, you know, particularly for the cool things they learn through their socialization. Parent-wise, I've learned all kinds of stuff. I mean, one of the biggest surprises, which I um, trace in the book, is that my kid's transition kindergarten teacher, a Black woman who had was born and raised in Oakland, not exactly in the neighborhood, but sort of the adjacent neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I ended up striking up this really interesting, um, what I think of as kind of a democratic friendship where we would be able to kind of tussle over things. And, you know, her first question when I said, like, what do you think about integration and white parents? Like, I'm kind of trying to think this through was, do you mean gentrification? Mm-hmm. And then really called out that she had in many ways taken the job at that school, wanting it to be a black school and mm-hmm. feeling like the white families that showed up were often a distraction and not actually that, you know, the theory of like my social capital is this white mom showing up offering either real resources or like social capital sources was not something that she was interested in. She wanted to be able to focus on Black kids and not be distracted. So that became like a really interesting and edifying relationship throughout the book. So that's, you know, one plot point that was a real surprise. The other that I guess I shouldn't have been surprised by, but but was in our second year there, a white mom came in who was really trying to sort of like take over the school and shake everyone up and and run things differently. And watching the ways in which people responded to her was, you know, a, a really instructive moment, I think, on a lot of levels. And so, you know, various fascinating relationships. There was also a, a school merger proposed that, to your point of in the intro, brought out kind of the worst of latent racism among white progressives or like multiracial, but like upwardly mobile progressives parents who said, like, we're not going to go to this flatland school and you can't make us. Um, so just, you know, everybody doing their best job to be human and and kind of failing miserably and sort of what that tells us about how hard democracy really is. Well, so, well, I want to sort of unpack each of those. One of the things that when you say, when you start with a kid being happy, that what's the distance between your house and the school? Three blocks. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is underappreciated, having a school that's three blocks away is amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. And like, obviously, which gets back to the point that it's very hard to untangle housing segregation and schooling segregation, which are, they feed on each other, right? People move to neighborhoods for the quote, good schools. Those quote, good schools are coded as white. And so this sort of reinforces these boundaries that get erected. But it's also the case that like, you know, when people lost their minds about busing, again, to go back to like the two levels that they're losing their minds, like one is just like racism. And the other is like, yeah, it sucks to send your kid on a bus 40 minutes away. And that, you know, having your kids be in the neighborhood school where they're of the neighborhood in this like deep way also just seems like, to me, it's like a better parent experience, right? It is. Although one complication here is my older kid doesn't have a single friend from her school that lives in the neighborhood because, and the neighborhood is filthy with families and filthy with kids her age, but they are all being essentially best. I mean, in, you know, Teslas or Priuses or whatever, but two schools that are further away, but are 
whiter and have higher socioeconomic populations. So that part's sad. Like I have thought about that. It's like, theoretically, we have this neighborhood school experience, but my kid doesn't actually have any friends in the neighborhood who go to our school. We'll be right back after we take this quick break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Talk about the merger, because that was where both the personal and the political like came together in exactly this one of these kind of moments, what the proposal was and how it played out. Yeah, this was um, right pre-COVID, just for context, because obviously things have gotten even more complicated. But there was basically a, a school in the Oakland Hills, which, you know, like we were talking about, the, these things can be found in all cities, you know, the area of the city that is whiter, wealthier tends to sometimes be physically higher up, um, which is the case in Oakland. Often. The Flatlands is where, you know, Black majority, historically Black neighborhoods. So there's a school in the hills, a school in the Flatlands, and the district proposed to merge these two schools. The families at the school in the Flatlands said, our school has been under providing for us, you know, for a decade plus. We want this merger, we think it might help, um, which in my opinion was pretty welcoming. And on their part, the school in the hills, which was theoretically sort of multiracial, but very economically mobile and lots of white progressive families there who were commuting, by the way, they didn't necessarily live around that school, but it was kind of known as like a decent school with enough racial integration to get back to our point about sort of mm -hmm. that sweet spot for white progressives, that it felt okay to send your kid there. And that population of families for the most part with with some critical exceptions of people who really embraced the merger and said like no this is a chance to live our values let's do this the vast majority went nuts and it was you know incredible vitriol at school board meetings you know profound pleas of how this school in the hills was a perfect place and it was a perfect community and they couldn't possibly be asked to make this move. The irony of which also was that a lot of the families that went to this hill school actually lived three blocks away from the Flatland School. They were also part of a gentrification wave in that neighborhood. And, you know, just as one illustrative example, there was a parent who told me that she knew of a kid who'd gone to a counselor at the Hills School who, and this kid was so traumatized by the school board meetings and by what was happening and was so scared about where they might go to school next year. And then the counselor finally figured out that the kid didn't fully understand what schools 
were being talked about and said, you know, so this Flatland School, it's the place you go play basketball on the weekends. And the kid was like, that's what we're talking about? I love that place. And here this kid had been like wrapped up in all this adult drama and racism and resistance, not realizing that this place was physically closer to the kid's school and the kid like felt very comfortable and loved playing there already. So just to give an example of just how absurd adult culture is in relationship to the way that children understand a lot of these things. You interview, I mean, you talk to a lot of parents, right? This is part memoir, part sort of journalism. You're talking to people. Unpack for me the psychosocial part of the kind of like the terrified feral feeling <laughs> in the parent, in the school board meeting, the white parent, but not exclusively white parent, but often white parent, about like, what's going to happen to your kid? What is that? Well, I think, Partly it's primordial, right? It's like our connection to our kids is very deep. And depending on our own childhood, our own baggage that we're bringing to that, you know, question of how to keep our kids safe, it can feel totally terrifying for people. The irony, of course, being that the people who are expressing the most terror are the most historically privileged, who have theoretically had, you know, far more advantages than the families in this flatland school who are saying, we welcome you, even though you're screaming at the school board meeting about how much you can't imagine being with us, we welcome you and we think it could, you know, rising tide lift all boats. This is also why I delved into some of the psychological pieces, because I think that this also has to do with our own baggage that we bring about education, about parenting, about safety. And like, you know, you said in the intro, you loved school. Some people hated school, you know, and my husband was one of those people. So that was also a thing I kind of wrestled with is like, if you hated school and you've never fully healed that in your Mm. own mind, and then you're parenting and you think you have this school where your kid is safe and loved and it's perfect and it reflects your progressive identity. Right. And then people say, we're going to make you be part of this big experiment that you already avoided, by the way. You did a lot to avoid this experiment already. We're going to force you to do this experiment. You know, it brings up all kinds of things for people. The thing that I can't, I have a hard time disaggregating. I think you're right. I think that I have, I think I have a certain amount of, I don't know if privilege is the right word, but I do think that the fact that I enjoyed school colors a lot of this for me. Yeah, me too. But I think that the thing I can't disaggregate Again, because I think all this stuff is like functioning on these a bunch of different levels. A thing that I observe among fairly affluent, educated people who are in the broad scheme of American life, like doing really well. Okay. <laughs> like when you zoom out and you think like the strata of American life, like, you know, whether it's income or whatever, like they're doing really well. Everyone's got their own baggage. No amount of wealth or education is going to heal like certain wounds, and traumas, and Life's tough for everyone. Everyone's just like a little <laughs> a little hurt soul, right, inside this robot. But <laughs> the thing that I observe is an anxiety about, I don't know what it is. Their kid's getting ahead. Their kid's getting into the right place. The kid's not, you know, sliding down the rung of, of American class striation. And I, I just, it always just seems neurotic. And I just see people where I'm like, all the time, I have this thought of like, your kid's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Like, they've got everything. Don't, who cares if they go to, like, what What college do they have to go to to do what? Like, they'll be fine. They're going to be fine. Like, are they happy? <laughs> are they like, and I, there's just this like weird thing. And I've seen that, like, I've witnessed that firsthand growing up in the Bronx among 
first generation families, right? Right. And there it's like, okay, well, yeah, you just yeah, moved you get away. It. You're away from everyone. You're in a place where you're just learning the language. You don't have like advantages. You don't have like you are you are hustling. And like that I totally understand. But I see that same mindset time and time among people that have like a lot of a lot of privilege, a lot of affluence, a lot of capital. And I just want to be like, for everyone's sake, just calm, just chill. You're good, man. <laughs> I don't know like how to say that. Right. Well, agreed. I mean, I'm with you. I think it's, you know, there's like the status anxiety analysis, right? That it's all relative and particularly in the Bay Area where we're proximate to Silicon Valley money. And there's just sort of like always someone who has more money, a bigger house, you know, the more childcare than you do. Like, I do think that plays a role. But I also kind of think of it, it's funny because my first book was on body image. And as you're talking, I was thinking like, it's kind of like the gap between knowing you don't want to be like a dieting, insecure, like hating your body kind of person and actually living that. It's like, Mm -hmm. I think there's some level on which white affluent parents like know, they really, really do know that like joy and fulfillment and, you know, delight and all these things are what's going to matter for their kids. And yet like can't quite integrate it, can't quite live it. And I think that is where this experience I had communally living in co-housing supported me because I was like already living it. I already had all these people around me who were sort of like pushing me not to fall for the bullshit. And so it it was like, I already had a culture that supported me to do that. And that is part of why I think the movement piece of this is so important. There's this organization, Integrated Schools. It's a national movement of all these parents, some white, but also people of color who are very intentionally committing to being a force for integration. And that provides the social proof that really helps you get over the cognitive dissonance of like, I know this is true, but I can't quite figure out how to live it. And then you like realize, oh, there are all these parents doing this where they're like getting off the treadmill and saying like, no, no, we know it's not true and we're not going to live like it is. We're not going to like make our kids crazy during our, and ourselves during the summer, getting them every enrichment opportunity ever existed. We're not going to like strategize our way into the fanciest schools we can. We're, we're going to like focus on like joy and wholeness and relationships and, you know, being a part of sometimes optimally dis, uh, discomforting, like cultural clashes where we can be like, oh, okay. You know, a tiny examples is like one of my kids' best friends is a recent immigrant. I can't communicate with her parents because they don't speak English. I figured out the oldest sister of 11 kids does. So now I text with the oldest sister and figure out play dates and like am learning about this whole other culture. Like that's harder, right? Than like just knowing mm-hmm. a white parent who I have a bunch of, you know, we watch the same TV shows, we eat the same food, we like speak the same language. Organizing play date with that person would have way less friction but it's way less interesting and fun and like stretching me as a person to think through like, what does it actually look like to connect across some of these boundaries? That's all stuff I want my kid to know how to do and to think is worth doing. And I think those are like muscles for democracy. Like those are muscles for what she will have to do in the future if she wants to like live among a a diverse group of people. Right. Although you also don't want your kid to like be too intentional about it, which is part of the gift that you're giving them, right? I mean, in the sense that What's great about kids, and this is not to say like kids are, kids don't see color, like that's not true, but kids get messages from all over, all kinds of places in all kinds of ways, but they do have, they're just less in their head about this stuff, right? Than we are, they're less, they're just less neurotic about it. They're less, you know, second guessing. They're less like, I'm reaching across difference. Like they like to play, they, they meet kids, they will play with them. And I do think that like, you know, one of the things, and you're very, 
you know, honest in your writing about one of the things we don't have, right, is because life in America is actually quite segregated in many ways, is that these like reaching across difference or ever end up being more effortful than they would in a universe that reduced the gap of that distance, right? So like right. we have not socially engineered enough integration in our society such that when we are doing it, it is in these contexts that like, you're describing in the book. And I talk more about the parents for integration because I do think like this is a thing I've come to feel super passionate about as like a parent and have worked on a little bit in very locally and in, in where I live in Brooklyn did like a school desegregation plan. Basically, that was there's a lot of parent involvement and and it I think has been very successful. You suffered some meetings for that one, I bet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and there's there's like here's one proposal I have. I think in the case of this school plan in Brooklyn, the status anxiety had gotten so insane about the good schools and the bad schools that the desegregation plan was like a relief because everyone got to get off the hamster wheel. Mm. So in this plan, they went from an application process that was crazy high stress, crazy high stakes, all this madness about absentees. Like if you had been too absent, like it was going to screw up your application. It's like, well, I can't, what, what if my kid has a disease and they can't go to, like they're sick. Like it was just, and it was driving everyone nuts. Mm-hmm. In that context, we moved to basically like a match lottery system that was like a net benefit in people's mental health because yes. the status stuff had gotten so nuts. So like where there would have been more resistance the status quo got so crazy along these lines of good school, bad school, got to get my kid in this place, that the the alternative plan worked because it was like, we could, how about we just get rid of the application process and we don't do this anymore? Yes. And, and I love that you said that because I do experience this choice that I've made and I hear this echoed throughout the integrated schools movement as a relief. It's like, right. okay, like now I get to show up at this place where I may be socially awkward at times or like trying to figure out a language barrier, but it's not, there's not this spirit of competitiveness. There's not this sense of like, you know, my daughter is in third grade now and like we're creeping towards, you know, like the tween age. And I'm just like, I'm not really that worried about her thinking there's like one way to look or one mm-hmm. kind of body to have because it's just like there, there's no norm here. It's like, it's just kind of joyful and haphazard and like we're trying to make things better together. But there's just like, we're not talking about, you know, going to Tahoe on the weekends and like our kids having really particular clothes and like, all of that status stuff just can't take root really in a school with that much racial and cultural diversity. And that I experience is like, just like you said, like a real relief of like getting off the hamster wheel and just being like, all right, let's all try to figure this thing out together. And I think I, I'm confused why that isn't more compelling and more attractive to more white progressive parents, but maybe it's just like a hard thing to feel your way into if you've never experienced it. Yeah. And I think the other thing, and I'd love to hear you talk about the teachers in the school, you mentioned one, but you know, my experience as a kid who went to public schools in New York City and is now a public school parent is like, there's a wide variety of teacher quality. (laughs) Like some teachers are not great. Some are amazing. I am consistently blown away by the level of like serious dedication of just like a random public school teacher. Like just drop a pin in a public school teacher and show up for their meeting. And it's like, this is your life's work. <laughs> like, you, yeah. this is your life's work. My kid and the kids you teach are your life's work. And 
I just feel in awe and, and really grateful for, and I think those kind of teachers can be found all over any system. Obviously, there are huge inequities of where the quote-unquote best teachers go and where resources go and things like that. But it is also the case I've found that you can find truly amazing teachers in all kinds of places throughout any major public school system. But I'm curious to hear your experience with teachers in your daughter's school. Oh, yeah. I mean, hell yeah. I just like, I so resonate with what you're saying. And I think COVID, which I, you know, the end of the book coincides with the beginning of COVID, just like laid that so bare for us because it was like the teachers at our school, again, you know, Title I school, profoundly underpaid, you know, these teachers were delivering food. They were like figuring out who needed internet and piecing that together. They were getting laptops for kids. They were, you know, moving hell and high water to find kids whose parents weren't directly in contact to make sure those kids were okay. They were absolutely first responders. They were absolutely essential workers in every way, shape, or form. And it just laid so bare the ways in which public schools truly are the center of communities and a safety net that we haven't otherwise established in this country. Like schools have to fill it all in and figure it all out. And that was interestingly also in contrast to higher income schools nearby me where I had parents saying like, the whole school has been caught flat-footed, teaching staff included. And I, the only thing I can figure out about that is that because Emerson is a school where we're constantly figuring out how to meet people's needs, how to get someone a Wi-Fi connection, how to like make sure people have food, it's like COVID was worse by, of course, every standard, but we already had those muscles. Whereas some of these wealthier schools where people privatize most of their needs, so they're not like interacting with each other about that, they're not triaging about those things, didn't have those muscles yet. So they had to be like, oh, okay, how do we think collectively about online school. Whereas at Emerson, it's like, we think collectively all the time. So let's just figure out how to do that in this crazy pandemic situation. On the flip side of that, don't you feel though, I mean, one thing that I started to feel around the great school reopening debate, which was fraught and incredibly nasty online. And understandably, because there's, it was one of those like legitimate conflicts between competing goods. Like they genuinely were in tension and there was not a great and perfect win-win solution in the offing, right? So People fought about it, understandably, but it did seem to me like sometimes I felt like people ended up arguing that like it didn't really matter that much if kids weren't in school physically. And I was just like, it just very clearly does above and beyond educationally for all the reasons you're saying. Like these are just vital, vital, vital community spaces, vital pillars of a, of a neighborhood. They're, it's really important. And it may be the case that because of the pandemic and safety concerns, it's not possible or it's only possible in limited ways. But like, I just think it, if anything, the pandemic just illustrated that more so, like how important schools are as institutions. Yes. And I'm actually hearing a lot of that even just this year from teachers who are saying, you know, this new class of students who've had a full year in school last year, you know, with, of course, lots of interruptions because of COVID, but like generally a full year in school are profoundly more able to learn to like, you know, sit in school to just do like the really fundamental things that last year were just an absolute nightmare for a lot of teachers at our school and, and at so many schools across the country. So I think that illustrates it. That, you know, the complexity comes in that there are lots of families whose kids would deeply benefit being in person who also just felt really vulnerable totally, and didn't yes. want to send their kids. And so it was just, you know, trying to figure all of that out, as you point out, was really challenging. More of our conversation after this quick break. Get- 
Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. I guess the sort of place that you end up in, right, is like, what do you do above and beyond this individual choice? Because, and I, and I think when I talked to Nicole Hannah-Jones about this, you know, she was interesting because she was like, she did focus on the individual part. She's like, I don't want to let people off the hook about their individual choices because, like, yes, it's structural, but also you make individual choices as a parent. Obviously, you know, you've made this choice and, and written this book about it. What do you tell parents? What's your what's your spiel, right, to parents about? how they should think through these choices, and then what that means at a level more than just the individual choice of your where your kid goes to school. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny because you said you hate meetings. I think I equally hate the coffee with the you know person in the neighborhood who I kind of know, but not really, who says that they want to consider going to Emerson or making some, you know, integrating choice. And then I can tell from like the first five minutes that they definitely don't really. And by the end, it's like, okay, I just spent another, you know, coffee, like explaining this school, which I deeply love and respect and feeling this pity come from them of like, oh, that's so wonderful that you're, you know, making this big sacrifice. And it's just like this, you're not getting it. That's not at all my experience. Anyway, so now I wrote a book so I can just hand them the book and be like, here's, here's the deal from my perspective. But honestly, the things I, I've been saying are really important to me is A, whatever choice you make, don't talk shit about schools you don't actually know about. So don't be the person who's on the playground yes. saying, I've heard we should really avoid that school. Yes. If you haven't toured it, if you, you know, don't know anyone who in very recent years has been at that school, just say, I don't know much about it. You know, I'm I'm interested to learn. Um, so that's like the the most basic thing. That is a great, totally operationalizable piece of advice that every parent can do. I, I think so. I hope so. Don't talk smack about a school you don't know anything about. <laughs> okay. So that's that's basic. The other one, and Integrated Schools, the organization I mentioned puts this forward, which is like a two-tour pledge. Like, go on a couple of school tours at places in your neighborhood, regardless of what you have heard about them, because everyone's not going to take our great first step. So, you know, just go see what you can do. I mean, I ultimately would love to like eliminate all tours on some level, because I think that also is so manipulatable by, you know, race and class standards and whatever. But like, go on a couple of tours in your neighborhood school, regardless of where you plan on going. And then the other thing I say is like, whatever choice you make, own that choice. Like what's so powerful is that even writing this book has made me quite alienated from a lot of like white neighborhood peers who have, you know, gotten into these other higher income, whiter schools because it pisses them off that I even wrote the book. Like, it's just like, for me, it's like, be honest. If you're sending your kid to a private school, admit we are not investing in this public institution. And think of another way that you might invest in that public institution or get involved in policy or something. But 
don't sort of walk around with this delusion that you can like make these choices and there's no impact on the public Mm -hmm. institutions that matter so much or on the kids who are, you know, quote unquote, left behind in those public schools that, you know, white progressive people are avoiding. Like these are all of our kids. And so it's like, if you need to make a choice for many complicated reasons, I don't know all your reasons, only you know your reasons, but don't act like the choice isn't impacting those kids and figure out a way to be a part of of making sure that all schools have the resources they need so those incredible teachers we talked about can give those kids all that they deserve, just like yours does. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the point of the tours, you know, just one more sort of personal anecdote was in going through my daughter's process of which school, you know, basically lottery, you're going to list your preferences and they match. So there's a bunch of tours which are basically all online because it was still you know, in the kind of COVID world. And I came away being impressed by like a lot of them, you know? (laughs) I mean, again, just to get back to this point of like, now, you know, some of it's dog and pony show. Like, I, you know, you could do a good tour and not have a great school the same way that like someone could be a good candidate and a bad, (laughs) bad senator, right? Exactly. But again, I mean, I guess my point is there's this thing that people (laughs) say about how bad the public schools are. And like, it just becomes this sort of, a little bit of like an uninterrogated piece of conventional wisdom. And it's not to say that like, like there are schools that are bad and there are teachers that are bad and there are places that are unsafe. Like, it, like I don't want to like diminish any of that. But I do think that sometimes among certain circles of people, it's a little like when I remember people used to talk about like, oh, that's a bad neighborhood. You can't go there. And I'd be like, no, that's, it's not, that's, it's fine. <laughs> it's really fine. Like, I promise you. Yeah. And there can be that general, like, conventional wisdom about a school or a school system that, to go back to your first point, just doesn't actually reckon with, like, what's actually going inside that building and what those people are doing there every day. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that gets to this sort of part of what angers me so much about it and why I wrote the book is, like, if we are progressive white folks finding ourselves in the middle of, like, a racial reckoning moment, we are, you know, buying Nicole Hannah-Jones book. We are putting the, you know, signs in our yard. We're like doing all the things. It's like, how can we not interrogate this part of our own parenting culture? How can we not interrogate the kind of status anxiety that you were talking about that we just sort of like carry around with us unexamined thinking like, yes, we will do all these things, but we still have to maneuver to get the best for our kids in in any and all situations. And how do we like break that apart and say like, what is actually best for our kids? And who are our kids? If we really take seriously the work of a lot of these people that we are all making bestsellers, like then we would have to be doing things in our lives that feel a lot different than, you know, what may feel comfortable or even what our parents might've done or what our grandparents might've done. So for me, this is like, you know, just really believing in the potential of this moment and of and what I do see as a very genuine desire on the part of people who have historically had a lot of privilege to do things differently. Like, let's do it differently. Let's not just read differently or watch differently or listen differently. Like, let's physically and with our resources and our very own children do things differently. Courtney Martin is the author of four books. Her latest, the subject of today's conversation, Learning in Public, Lessons for a Racially Divided America from My Daughter's School. She also writes a newsletter on Substack called The Examined Family, and she's co-founder of Fresh Speakers, which is a speakers bureau which focuses on making thought leadership more inclusive and equitable. She's also a co-founder of Solutions Journalism Network. Courtney, this was great. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Chris. This was fun.
Once again, great thanks to Courtney Martin. Um, you can give us your experience, what you've done with your kids and how you think about schooling. Uh, tweet us with the hashtag WithPod, email withpod at gmail.com. And also be sure to follow us on TikTok by searching for WithPod. Why is this happening? Is presented by MSNBC and NBC News, produced by Donnie Holloway and Brendan O'Melia, engineered by Bob Mallory, featuring music by Eddie Cooper. You can see more of our work, including links to things we mentioned here, by going to nbcnews.com slash why is this happening. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today.